If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. We want to consider this morning the grace of the gospel. The apostle lays his foundation for everything that he's going to say about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of ourselves. So, verses 1 through 11 is simply the foundation for that. So, we begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes to the church and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May God bless to us the reading of His inspired and infallible Word. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word to preach and to hear. And we desire this morning that the Holy Spirit would be of such help to us as we listen to the Word that we might be changed that we might be encouraged, that we might be strengthened, nourished, built up in our faith, that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ more because of what He has done for us in grace, and that we might treasure the gospel as so precious to us that it's worth everything. And so we praise You and we thank You that we have come to worship. And now in the preaching of the Word, we worship You this morning. And so we commend ourselves to You now and ask Your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have now reached what we might call the pinnacle of the entire letter to the Corinthians. In this uh, final chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to answer some questions that uh, the Corinthians foolishly are considering. And he's going to lay out for us this great, glorious doctrine of the resurrection, uh, not only of the Lord Jesus, but of ourselves. In fact, our resurrection is so intimately, intricately tied to His resurrection that one without the other is impossible. And so because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too shall be raised from the dead. But in these opening verses, He lays the foundation for the establishment of this great doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, everything that the Apostle Paul has said up to this point in 1 in Corinthians is going to be totally and completely dependent on what he says about resurrection. 
So in dealing with all of their little troubles and problems and sins, it is all going to ultimately come back to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and because of that, we too, the Corinthians, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ shall experience resurrection. So get yourselves, Paul would say to the Corinthians, in line. Make sure you believe the truth. Make sure you're firmly convinced of the things you say you have believed. And that's something that's so desperately needed in our day and age. Many people say they are Christians, but have no, absolutely no comprehension of the gospel and what the gospel is really all about. Well, the apostle is going to tell us this morning about that gospel, which is just a gospel of grace and a gospel that is centered in the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have to believe. That's what we must believe if we are Christians. So it is the resurrection that Paul wants to bring to our hearts and to our minds in order to convince us that in this life, today, tomorrow, in this life, you can have certainty and you can have hope. That's what the gospel brings to us. And the gospel, as you know, hinges on this great truth that Jesus is raised from the dead. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no future resurrection for ourselves. Or to put it another way, there is no hope without Jesus being raised from the dead. It is, without question, central. So if, if someone were to say, like someone in Corinth was saying, that there is no resurrection, or what is that all about, there is no hope if there is no resurrection. Now let me show you that from the passage. Look at verse 13, first of all. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If that's true, there is no gospel, right? Right, so, verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then not even Jesus is risen from the dead. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, go back to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And then go to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Notice the consequences, right? If Jesus is not risen from the dead, there is no such thing as resurrection. If there is no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus is not risen from the dead. And the consequences of that is that your faith is futile, it's vain, it's empty. There is no hope. Or to put it another way, there is no gospel. There is no grace. It matters not if Jesus is not risen from the dead, if we don't believe in this great doctrine. So notice that from those verses, there are just two results. Number one, there's no future for us if Jesus is not alive. And verse 18 says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who, who made a profession of faith, who believed the gospel, who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's not raised from the dead, then, Paul says, they have perished. It's of no avail. That's the first thing. There's no future if there is no res risen Christ. In verse 19, the second part, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The present 
offers no hope as a result of uh, verse 18 uh, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if Christ is not risen from the dead. Our hope, dear congregation, is not just in this life, is it? No, the whole thing about resurrection is the future. The whole thing about what, when we think about Jesus rising from the dead, is to give us hope that we too shall certainly rise from the dead. So it's in anticipation of the future day of resurrection for ourselves that is so dependent and hinges upon the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christians have been saying for centuries that the, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely fundamental, central to the gospel. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing like that. So Jesus raised from the dead is absolutely crucial to an ongoing salvation experience by ourselves, not just hope for this life, but hope for the life that is to come. And that tells us how significant resurrection is. Our resurrection is dependent upon the resurrection of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the interesting thing about resurrection is that it is always tied to death. Because you cannot have a resurrection without death. And the literal meaning of the word resurrection is literally life out from among the dead. So you read in the New Testament some experiences of people who came back, like Lazarus. That was a, really a resuscitation to life because he would die again. But the startling thing about resurrection is that there is no death after resurrection. But it is death that is necessary to resurrection. And so we must be clear on that aspect of what we mean by resurrection. It means life out from among those who are dead. If you look at verse 21, it says, By one man, or by a man, came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul there quite just simply unfolds for us that there is death that exists, but there's also life. The death came through one man, this man Adam, but life has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about resurrection, resurrection is not just a doctrine for today, though that's so absolutely crucial for all of us, but it's a doctrine for tomorrow. Or to put it another way, resurrection has an order to it and an eschatology to it. And what do we mean by that? We mean that it's going somewhere, that it's going to an end. So look, for example, at verse 23, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who are, belong to Christ. So notice verse 23 tells us. Who was raised first? Jesus. And that as a consequence of Jesus being raised, those at His coming also will experience resurrection. But Jesus first. Then in verse 24, then comes the end. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So what happens since Jesus has been raised from the dead? And what happens when Jesus comes again and we experience resurrection? Then, only then, comes the end. And what is that end? The destruction by Jesus of every cosmic spiritual rule, authority, and power. And look at verse 25. For He must reign. 
until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And that's what Jesus is doing right at this very moment. Ascended, exalted at the Father's right hand. He rules and he reigns and he shall come back for us, for his people. So we simply affirm that in the resurrection there is triumph. There is victory in the resurrection because of Jesus. It all hinges on him being raised from the dead. As in Adam, what happens? All die. They spiritually die, and they physically die as a consequence of their spiritual sin, their guilt before God. And in Christ, there is life. All in Christ are made alive. Even the wicked and the unbeliever at a future day will experience resurrection to judgment, to the wrath of God. So the resurrection of Jesus is so, is so important, isn't it? It gives us life, gives us hope, but it's, it cements the guilt and the judgment of the unbeliever who reject the doctrine of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So through Adam came ruin. Through Adam came this terrible thing that we all experience, this death. But through Jesus there is restoration to life. There is recovery. There is resurrection. There is hope. There is victory. There is triumph. There is life everlasting. So I want to begin at the beginning... Because that's where Paul begins. That's what we find here, broadly speaking, in verses 1 through 11. The aim of chapter 15, of course, is primarily to deal with the question that you find in verse 12. What is the question in verse 12? Now, if Christ is preached or proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he's, of course, told us, right? That if Christ is raised, then there is a resurrection. So how can some of you Corinthians uh, go around saying there is no resurrection of the dead? If you are preaching Christ as risen from the dead, doesn't make sense. That's the question he's going to answer. And he's going to deal with in chapter 15, this great chapter. So I want to give you a little outline of this chapter because I think it's very important. First of all, in verses 1 through 11, he, he's concerned with the resurrection of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus, 1 through 11. In verses 12, all the way through verse 34, he's concerned about the resurrection of the dead. A general resurrection of the dead, 12 through 34. Thirdly, in verses 35 through 49, he's going to describe for us the resurrection of the body. What happens to the body in resurrection? What is it like? And then finally, number four, in verses 50 through 58, he's going to explain the mystery that he talks about, and he's going to exhort motivation, the very last verse, right? An encouragement to all of us in light of the doctrine of resurrection, that we ourselves should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor or your work in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul begins this great chapter where we began our Christian lives. Now I want to ask you this morning, have you begun the Christian life? Do you know the Christian life? Have you experienced Christ and the gospel and grace? Do you know who Christ is? Do you know what the gospel is? Do you know what grace is and what it means? Can you define it? Can you stipulate? Can you say, I know what the grace of God is. I know what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is. That's where Paul begins. In fact, every Christian has 
begun at precisely that point, the point of receiving the gospel and the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul does. He begins with the gospel and he begins with the grace of God or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the Bible, the New Testament, and you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all of those gospels, each one of them, you read an account of the life of Jesus the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. In all of those Gospels, uh, without exception, they tell us the similar, same story, little different perspective from some of them, but essentially they describe those events. The, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But here, in 1 Corinthians 15, is another account is an account number five, if you like. A fifth account which supports, lends support to the four Gospels. This is the Apostle Paul talking now about the doctrine of resurrection. Or to put it in the context of the Gospel, he's talking about how the resurrection is connected to the Gospel of God and the grace of God. That every Christian says they believe without inhibition or without any detraction. So for the Apostle Paul... For you and for me this morning, the doctrine of the resurrection is at the heart of your faith. It's at the center, it's the central, it's the central feature of your belief. Because without it, there is no gospel. There is no Christianity. There is no life in Christ. There is no hope. There is no future without this belief and this confession uh, of faith. So I desire to show you this morning that the apostle in trying to bring to you the gospel and the grace of the gospel that he brings it to us in three ways first of all he talks about the receiving the gospel in verses 1 and 2 receiving the gospel he talks in verses 3 through 8 about preaching the gospel so receiving the gospel preaching the gospel verses 3 through 8 and finally, thirdly, verses 9 through 11, living the gospel. Now, when you think about those things, they all belong together, don't they? Receiving the gospel, preaching the gospel, living the gospel. And he connects each of those activities, the receiving, the preaching, and the living, the gospel, to this doctrine of grace. God's unmerited favor. That's what the gospel is about, right? God's favor toward us. So when he does that, when he connects the gospel to grace, this is what you have. In receiving the gospel, you have grace delivered to you. Grace is delivered to you in receiving the gospel. In preaching the gospel, you have grace described. And in living the gospel, you have grace displayed. It's on display. It's on show. When you live the gospel. So we discover that the Apostle Paul, as he is going to lay his foundation, the groundwork for the doctrine of the resurrection, he tells us about the gospel, that he presents the gospel, that he preaches the gospel, that he proves the gospel, and that the gospel brings a perfection, ultimately because of grace. It's all because of grace. This is something the Apostle Paul knows personally, the grace of God, doesn't he? God saved him. God changed him. God delivered him from his past. His past is quite horrible. He talks about persecuting the church. He's the least of the saints. He's unworthy of, of anything, of grace. He's a completely unworthy of that. But that's the remarkable thing about the grace of God. It comes to unworthy sinners. 
And it saves us and delivers us. So for the Apostle Paul, his entire ministry from the moment Jesus saved him, called him, commissioned him, everything is related in his service to the Gentiles, to establishing these churches, everything is related to Jesus being alive, to Jesus being risen from the dead. And may I suggest to you this morning that your life under the gospel and under grace is dependent upon and related to Jesus being alive. You live your life in accordance with that truth that Jesus lives. That right now, for me, Christ is risen. In fact, Paul tells us we have been raised with Christ also. We're so vitally in union, connected to Jesus, that you cannot think of your life apart from Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, if you read Colossians or Ephesians, we are seated with Him in heavenly places. Because He's risen from the dead. So let's look at these verses 1 through 11, the foundation for this great doctrine of the resurrection, because it's at the heart of the gospel. I mean, I think that's what Paul wants these Corinthians to desperately understand and grasp, because some of them are saying, verse 12, there's no resurrection of the dead. So let's talk about receiving the gospel, verses 1 and 2. Now, you know, in order to receive the gospel, you have to hear the gospel, right? In order to receive the gospel according to the Bible, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, you have to hear the, the gospel. You have to hear about God's grace. And the, the question then must be asked, well, well how, do, how do you hear the gospel? Well, the answer is quite simple. Someone has to declare it. Someone has to preach it. Someone has to proclaim it to you. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. So, in order to receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to hear it. And someone has to tell you it in order for you to hear it. That's what Paul did. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, they received the gospel, but Paul himself has already, as we know from Acts chapter 9, received the gospel himself. He's believed the gospel. And he's come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he wants the Corinthians to understand that it's one thing to say you've received the gospel. It's another thing to remain faithful and firm to that gospel. And so he will say to them, you will notice the end of verse 1, in which you stand. I have hope for you, Corinthians, because you have made an initial confession of faith. You have believed the gospel, received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are continuing. You are standing in it. You're standing in that conviction and that firm, so in that faith. So he says, you believe, that's one thing, but he says, you continue, and you receive, and you stand. So what is he saying there? He's talking about, we have our conversion, which is one thing. We can say we were converted, we were changed, we were saved. But then he says another thing, he says, you continue. It's, you see, it's one thing to say, I am a Christian, profess that I believe, it's a different thing to say I continue to be a Christian and to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says at the front. He's up front. He says, let me remind you of the gospel which you've received and in which you stand. So I have hopes for you because you received the word when I came to you. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. 
He talks about that in chapter 2. When I came among you, I did not come with eloquence, but I came with you with humility, and uh, I preached the word, I preached Jesus to you in spirit and in power. He says, you received that gospel, you believed that gospel, and now you're still standing in that belief, standing in the gospel. But notice it's not only receiving and standing, but look at verse 2, thirdly, and by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. There are consequences to receiving and standing in the gospel. You are in a process that ultimately will result in a complete and final salvation because Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the gospel. You have believed, you have received, you stand in it, and by which you are being saved. So will you notice then that the gospel has to do with your past when you received it, has to do with your present, are you standing in it, and has to do with your future by which you shall be saved, ultimately. So you cannot and I cannot willingly play with the gospel. Either it means something to us, affects our lives, changes us, we live by it in our business place or our workplace or wherever it is. This is my life. It's not devoid from my business life. It's not devoid from my home life. It is our lives, this gospel, this grace that we have believed and that we have received. So the gospel affects my past, it affects my present today, and it affects my tomorrow. I have hope for everlasting life because I continue to believe the gospel I originally received. That's what Paul says. That's what he told the Philippians, right? Chapter 1, verse 6. That God who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God did something. You heard the gospel, you believed, you received the gospel, and obviously that is hope because God is doing something in you now that He saved you that He's going to finish in a future day. And it all depends on Jesus alive from the dead. How precious it is to have a risen Savior. So many things contingent on Christ alive from the dead. My faith dependent on Jesus risen from the dead. Same as yours. So, Paul says, not only have we, and the Corinthians, received the gospel, but he says, you have a responsibility to that gospel, to what you say you have believed. And that responsibility is in order that you prove the reality of that saving work of Christ in you. You know, good works, of course, as we know, are the proof of saving faith. They don't cause saving faith, they are the fruit of saving faith. So what God does in saving us is to change us so that we now produce the works of God. That we now demonstrate a sanctified experience in our daily life. We think differently. We should behave differently. We should do that every day until Jesus comes. Verse 2, he says, if you hold fast, notice what he says, you are being saved by this gospel. If, verse 2, you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Oh, how many people have said they are Christians and have wandered from the faith and squandered the faith? How many of those, even today, who say that they are Christian and have no life with Jesus, have no comprehension of the saving Lord? None whatsoever. What kind of faith is that? That's not biblical faith. That's not saving faith. That's a spurious faith. 
That's a faith of your own making, your own mind. Do you know the risen, exalted Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. Do you know that? Because if you don't, you've believed in vain. And if you've believed in vain, you perish. You're under the judgment of God. So we must prove, that's what he means by having received and standing and continuing, by which we will be saved. He is saying you are proving through all of those little things the reality of your salvation, that you are truly Christian. If you hold fast to the word, the gospel that I preached to you. So I discovered that the gospel is for all of my life, from conversion to the coming of Jesus. So from that initial saving grace that came to me, regeneration, new birth, to my daily life with Christ, to my sanctified life in Christ, until I am with Christ. And by the way, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. Now, if you haven't received, you haven't believed, then you're not standing, and you will not be saved finally, because you will have believed in vain, which is to not believe the gospel, the word, Paul says, that I preach to you. To believe in vain is no salvation at all. What a horrible thing. Because if there's no salvation at all, you don't believe Jesus is alive right now. And if there's no Jesus alive right now, what is the gospel and what is faith to you? It's nothing. And there are many people who have a kind of faith, but it's not the faith of the gospel, not the faith of the Bible, but it's their own kind of faith, their own understanding of how they can be right with God. And it's not according to the word, Paul says, that I preached this gospel that he declared to the Corinthians. So what did Paul actually preach to them? That's the issue, right? What did he actually preach? So what is this gospel? So look at verses 3 through 8. The preaching of the gospel. This is what Paul preached to them. You want to know what he said about the gospel? He tells us about the gospel. He says in verse 1, I preached the gospel to you. And you were saved, he says, as a result. But what was it particularly that he preached to them? Well, let me give you the two big things in verses 3 through 8. Number one, there's Paul's content of the gospel. Paul's content of the gospel, and there's Paul's confirmation of the gospel. Paul's content and Paul's confirmation relating to his preaching of the word that the Corinthians have received and believed. So what is the content? Well, look at the text. Look at verses 3 through 5. There are four facts. Here's the content of Paul's gospel. Number one, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received Number one, Jesus died for our sins. That's the first thing. First fact, Jesus died. Not only died, but he was buried. That's fact number two, Jesus was buried. And not only that, but he was raised on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And verse five, and that he appeared. And then he gives a long list of who he appeared to. Those are the facts, the content of Paul's gospel. And they're of immense significance, aren't they? Your whole life is wrapped up in those facts. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried as a result of that. And he rose again from the dead. And he appeared. He's alive. So Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you, or I preached to you, 
what was of first importance, he says, meaning what I received, I delivered to you as being of first importance. Now that word or phrase of first importance means in the first place or the main purpose, the main thing. I delivered to you the central thing, the main thing of first important. And that shows us the simplicity of the gospel. You know, it's no good us confusing the gospel when we try to explain it to people. It's far better to state the facts. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Jesus appeared alive to many. Jesus is coming again. Simple. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Paul says, that's of first importance what I told you. I told you Jesus died for your sins. I told you He was buried. I told you He rose again. And I told you that He appeared. So this is where Paul begins with the Corinthians. And may I say, this is where we begin. If you want to know what the content of the gospel is, what is it that I have believed? That's what you have believed. Tomorrow is the 51st anniversary of my salvation, my conversion. 51 years tomorrow. The same facts. Jesus died for my sins. Still as beautiful and as precious to me as 51 years ago when Christ drew me to Himself. That's a long time, you know, half a century. To believe the same, the facts. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again, Jesus showed Himself alive, I believe that. Paul says that's the main thing. That's of first importance. In fact, Paul would say to us, as a consequence of that, that there is no salvation if you don't believe those simple things. That's where you start. And apart from those facts, for you and for me, there would be no salvation at all. You can't leave that out, is what I'm saying. You can talk about all kinds of things to people trying to prove that God exists, that Jesus exists. You can do all those kinds of things. But if you leave out that Jesus died for sinners, Jesus was buried and rose again, and Jesus appeared and Jesus is coming, if you leave that out, you haven't really communicated the gospel at all. So we can't leave it out. And we must not adjust it. We must say it for what it is and say it as it is. So we proclaim the facts as they are and we receive them for ourselves and we believe them for ourselves. Just those simple truths as Paul says. That's content. Because there's so much in those, isn't there? I mean the whole scope of the Bible is about Jesus dying and being buried and rising again and appearing and coming again. The whole, the whole of Scripture depends upon that fact or those facts. So content is important, isn't it? But is, is it as important as Paul says it is? Is it really important? How do I know it's important? Well, look what Paul does. He does two things. Number one, he presents the facts and he provides the proof of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and appearance. So here's what it sounds like. Jesus died. That's his proof of sacrifice for your sins. Because it says, Jesus died for our sins. So Jesus died, proof of sacrifice. He says Jesus was buried, proof of death. He's actually dead. His body's in there. He's dead. And there are people that attested to that. They buried him. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. The women were quite prepared to come and, and clothe the body and bury the body afresh after, after preparing their spices. No, Jesus died. The proof is in the burial. He was dead in the tomb. 
Jesus risen, Paul says, on the third day. Proof of victory. Proof of victory. I mean, who's ever heard of someone rising from the dead? Jesus himself said, nobody takes my life from me. I have the authority, the power to lay it down, and I have that same power and authority to take it back to myself. That's exactly what he did. He rose from the dead. And then, that's not the end of the story, right? Because it says Jesus appeared. And he gives this long list, Paul, of, of people he appeared to. That's proof of life. You see, it's one thing to say, oh, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what's your proof? Have you got any witnesses? Oh, yes, we've got witnesses, Paul says. That I'm also one witness. One untimely born. Unlikely candidate to attribute and confirm that Jesus is alive and risen from the dead. But you know the interesting thing about all those facts which we believe is that the Bible has already talked about them. Because he says it's according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures. So the whole scope of the Old Testament is to prove that Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose, and Jesus appeared alive. And the support for that is the Old Testament Scriptures. Now we don't have time this morning to look at some of the apostolic examples uh, in Scripture of the preaching of the apostles about those things. But let me give you some uh, passages from the book of Acts. You can look at them in your own time. Uh, but every single one of these passages from the preaching of the apostles, a wide range of them, in the book of Acts is about that God raised Jesus from the dead. So here they are, Acts 2.24. That's the day of Pentecost, Peter, Acts 2.24. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 3.15, that's the gate beautiful, right? Again, in the preaching, as a result of healing the man lame at the beautiful gate, Jesus, God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 4.10, after being persecuted for their preaching, again, pointing to the Jewish leaders, Peter says... God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 5 verse 30, same scenario. Persecuted for their preaching, but Peter says God raised Jesus from the dead. And what does Peter say to Cornelius in Acts 10 verse 40? God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Apostle Paul in the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 13, he tells those Antiochians that are there, he says to them, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the preaching, the content of the preaching of the apostles was that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Paul is claiming that the Old Testament scriptures support those statements. Jesus died, buried, risen from the dead, and he made appearance post-resurrection. So he's pointing back to the Old Testament, to the prophetic scriptures or word of God that pointed to these very facts that are the essence of the gospel. Don't miss, by the way, that the Apostle Paul says, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. You notice how he puts that? Messiah died for our sins. He's writing to Gentiles. That this one is from the Old Testament, the anointed of God, the one to come. As John the Baptist preached, one is coming after me. 
I baptize you with water unto repentance, but one comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with fire. I'm not worthy to unloosen his sandal straps. So Messiah died for our sins. The Lord's anointed, his chosen one, his son, his beloved son, died for our sins. You read about that in Psalm 22. You read about that in Psalm 69. You read about that in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus died. Messiah died. And that Messiah rose from the dead, Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You're not going to keep Him in the grave, leave Him in the grave. Have you ever thought of the fact that when they came to Jesus to break their legs, because the Pharisees had asked that question, right? We want, to, we want to get this over and done with. So break their legs, right? That when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Okay, because Jesus is in full control of his life, dismisses his spirit, and hangs his head, and life, his life goes from him as he dismisses it. Have you ever thought that the breaking of the legs was, was an important feature because it would hasten death? Because... Normally, you would leave a person up on a cross and he would linger there for days. But Jesus must rise from the dead in three days. He cannot be lingering on a cross, hanging on to life. And by the way, the two thieves broke their legs and they would have died soon after. Isn't that an interesting thing? Because Jesus must rise from the dead according to the Scriptures, on the third day. So, he would not see corruption. And the Apostle Paul does, a, I mean, the Apostle Peter does a remarkable thing in his preaching in Acts chapter 3, when he quotes from Genesis chapter 22, you remember the passage about Abraham offering up Isaac his son. In that passage, the, he says that the future blessing of the Gentile salvation, that's the Corinthians, that's you and me, that their future uh, salvation, which was promised through Abraham and to Abraham, hinges upon the sufferings of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Because Psalm 2 7 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, which the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 on his missionary journey says that that verse is all about Jesus risen from the dead. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And let's not miss, by the way, what the entire scriptures teach that sin always requires sacrifice. Can't miss it, right? From the very first book in the Bible to the end. Sin necessitates death. Necessitates a sacrifice to be made. Atonement. That's why Paul says Christ died for our sins. You can read particularly about that in Isaiah chapter 53. Messiah died for our sins. For the transgression of many. He was slain. But that's not all, right? There are these appearances that we have in verses 3 through 8. And the appearances are proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Because historical facts require historical evidence. So here it is. So let's look at these. Look at, look at these with me. Here's the, here's the order. Verse 5. Jesus shows himself to these witnesses. Number one, to Peter. 
Number two, to disciples. To number three, number three, more than 500 at one time. Some of those people out of the 500 are still alive, Paul says. Some have died. Number four, James, verse seven. Number five, all the apostles, verse seven. And number six, verse eight, Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now what's Paul doing here, by the way? He's appealing to competent witnesses. That's all he's doing. He's appealing to competent and reliable witnesses. In fact, Paul says, I invite scrutiny. I invite examination. Some are still alive. You can go and check with them. You can go and examine them and talk to them. So this reliable record of testimony makes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the best authenticated event in all of human history. And it is. Do you know that if you were to try and find copies, uh, I think I've used this illustration before, of Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul? You can hardly find anything like that in an ancient manuscript. Do you know that there are more than 5,000 New Testament manuscripts? 5,000 attesting to the reality of what you say you believe in the Word of God, but you can hardly find anything on Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Yet we all believe Caesar conquested, uh, I mean, overthrew Gaul. We all believe that. You can read one book of that, but there's no evidence. But look at the New Testament and the Old Testament scriptures. Well supported, right? Well documented. So this reliable record from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, tells us that Jesus' sufferings, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His exaltation, are all prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures, all fulfilled in the New Testament Scriptures, Scripture proving and cementing the facts that were promised in the Old Testament, and then witnesses coming along and saying, yes, that's what happened, that's what happened, that's what happened. So the Gospels tell us that Jesus, here's the interesting thing, He showed Himself alive to the women first of all. Now you know that's an interesting thing because in the first century nobody would have believed the testimony of a woman to authenticate something so great and grand as a resurrection from the dead. Ah, they, in fact the disciples didn't believe the women's report. And yet they are held up as the witnesses to, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Who would put that in to secure a reliable witness if their witness would be just disregarded? But yet, in the Gospels, it is the women who testify first to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So the appearances of Jesus alive are proof of resurrection, right? And if that's true, they're proof that Jesus died, and Jesus dying is stipulated as a sacrifice for my sins, for your sins. It's a wide range of witnesses, isn't it? Those close to Jesus, the twelve, a general extension of more than 500 at one time, some are still alive, even James, the half-brother of Jesus who did not believe initially, Jesus appeared to him. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And last of all, Paul says, he appears to Saul of Tarsus, who didn't believe a word of it until he saw the risen, exalted Jesus. Now, you know, dear congregation, you and I have seen with the eyes of faith the truth and the reality of Christ. 
Because God gives you the faith to believe these truths. Enables us to understand Him. And Paul says, he even claims that he's a most unlikely witness himself. I'm one untimely born. It's almost like a, the use of the word of abo- for an abortion. I, I don't belong. But here I am. It's not because of me. It shouldn't be me. He says, I came in last of all, he says. And I only came in because God gave grace to me and extended His mercy to me. Grace was displayed to me. So Paul describes this preaching and the content, the facts of the preaching. But now he's going to talk about living this gospel. Because it's supposed to have an effect on my life, right? On Paul's life. So notice Paul says that grace came to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 9 through 11, living the gospel. Grace is delivered to us when we receive the gospel. Grace is described for us when we hear the preaching of the gospel. But now, in living the gospel, grace is to be displayed by us and is displayed in us through the work of the Spirit of God. So Paul, in order to do that, he talks about his commission and he talks about his conduct at the present time. In fact, he says, I'm only qualified to talk about these things because of God's grace. There's no other reason. It's only because Jesus died for me and Jesus saved me. So he says, in verse 9, I am the least... Verse 9, I'm unworthy, so I'm the least of being an apostle, and I'm unworthy to be an apostle. Why? Verse 10, because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted the church. So, so there's no question Paul's establishing, I am saved by grace only. And I'm saved by God's grace, not because I'm worthy. He's already told us, I'm not worthy, I'm the least. I don't deserve any mercy. I don't deserve any grace. I don't deserve this salvation. I don't deserve Jesus dying for me. That's true of all of us, isn't it? We don't deserve anything that God has done for us, but yet the gospel comes to us and says, this is what I've done for you. Jesus died for our sins, Paul says. For me. God's grace then comes to sinners, to the worst sinner. And the great change in Saul of Tarsus, dear brothers and sisters, this morning is only by grace. It's only by grace. Only God's grace, by the way, through the gospel, can accomplish such a change in a man. Verse 10, he says, His grace towards me was not in vain. So much so that now I describe myself as I am what I am by the grace of God. How do you describe your life? Well, I've accomplished this and this in my life. I've done all this in my my work life, my business life. I'm a a successful person. Or I'm doing this in my daily work. This This is what defines me. No, that's not what defines you. What defines you is the grace of God. You are what you are solely by God's grace. Who among us would be here this morning if it weren't for God's grace? You wouldn't even be here this morning if it weren't for a sovereign God providentially drawing you to Himself and bringing you into His presence. This is what every Christian you see knows. This is the personal reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ alive for me and alive for you. This is the grace of the gospel. Grace has come to each of us despite ourselves. We don't merit any of us. And the remarkable thing about this this grace that has come to us, it continues to change us. 
into the likeness of the Son of God who is alive for us at this very moment. It displays itself. Can't help but show itself God's grace in us. Remember in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, God called me by what? His grace. Called me by His grace. 1 Timothy 1.13 I was formerly a blasphemer. Think about that. I was a blasphemer of God, Paul says. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. I received mercy. Sometimes we can be too full of ourselves. That was the Corinthians' problem. Too full of themselves. Too self-confident in their gifts and abilities and whatever it was. And we can sometimes get like that. We, we've got our theology down, so we get confident in that. There's only one thing that matters for any of us this morning. It's the gospel and the grace of Christ in saving us. Sinners like Paul. So Jesus called Paul and Jesus calls me and you this morning by mercy, by grace, to himself. In fact, he saved Paul, and Paul continues to, continued to demonstrate that saving change initially as he lived his life. You look what he tells the Corinthians in verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all those other apostles. Why do you think Paul worked harder? Because he regarded himself as completely the least and the most unworthy. I don't deserve any of this. So I'm going to labor for Jesus to the end. And I worked harder, he says, than any of them. Though it was not I, but it was God's grace in me. Do you know that we are saved by grace? Right? Not saved by ourselves. You're saved by grace. Do you know that that grace enables you to live day by day, to work day by day, to witness day by day? That grace, that initial grace that came to you, that saving grace, that same grace, sustaining you, keeping you every day in your workplace, in your home life, whatever it is, you need grace. We need more and more to love it and to treasure it, to hold on to it, because that's the only thing that changes us. This gospel, this gospel of good news, this grace. So much so that Paul can say, I owe everything to Jesus. I'm holding nothing back. I owe everything to Him because He saved me when I deserved wrath and condemnation. And his conduct was different, right? He used to be against the gospel, but now he's totally for the gospel. I mean, what a change, right? That's what salvation did to, does to us. We used to be against Christ, but now we're for Christ. We used to hate God. Now we love God. We despise the Bible. Now we treasure the Bible. Because of grace. Because of this gospel. And Paul says, it was not I that did that, but God's grace working in me. You see, every Christian is a canvas on which God displays His grace, like an artist. You are a picture of grace. You're a portrait of grace. What is it that people see when they look at us? They should see Christ, right? Because it's grace that does that in us. You see, grace is the great motivator to keep on. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Whether then it was I or they, I'm just going to keep on preaching so that others will keep on believing. So we preach and so you believed. 
What does the gospel require? Jesus risen from the dead. What does grace, the grace of God, require in your life? Jesus risen, alive this morning, doing his work today in me because he's alive from the dead. Can I, can I have that assurance? Can I know that for sure, that this gospel that I say I believe, can I know that it's true? That's a good question, isn't it? Paul says, let me give you some evidence to the Corinthians. He says, you were saved by grace. Just like me. He says, the scriptures tell us the heart of the gospel is this good news that Jesus died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and appeared to many witnesses. The apostles all believed it, and I believe it. What more do you want to encourage you, to motivate you, to convince you of the truth and the reality? So don't go around saying there's no resurrection of the dead, you Corinthians, verse 12. No, here's the proof for it, right? And you see then that this resurrection of the Lord Jesus is essential to your daily faith. This is what we believe and we confess. It is our faith. That's why Calvin says that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief point of the gospel. There are many points to the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus buried. But the chiefest of them is that he rose from the dead on the third day. So the gospel and grace brings dead sinners to life. It's like resurrection, isn't it? The grace of God toward us. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by grace you have been saved. God made us alive when we were dead. That's resurrection. That's new life, right? That's what God did. So salvation is a spiritual resurrection. By grace. Undeserved by us. But yet showered upon us. So that under God's beautiful grace, we can live by faith. Because His grace sustains us. I am what I am today by the grace of God. That's what Paul would say. That's what we can say. By faith in the gospel. By faith having received and believed this good news. That Jesus died for my sins. Was buried and rose again. And He shall come again and show Himself risen from the dead. And when I see Him, I shall be like Him. Because I'll see Him as He is. Isn't that a great truth, right? Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for these glorious truths that we have been considering this morning about our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Thank you that he died for our sins, and we are sinners. We need mercy. We need grace. We don't deserve any of it, but you have loved us with an everlasting love, so much so that you sent your beloved Son come into this world to lay down his life for us, to make atonement for our sins, to satisfy your divine justice, your wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bearing our sins in your own body on the tree so that we might die to ourselves and die to our sins and live unto God. Help us by grace then, Father, your grace, to do that every day. Help us in our work, help us in our homes, help us in our families. Bless us and be with us and pour out your grace upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ day by day. Thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. We worship the risen, exalted Christ. Thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.